Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning on, on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I'm not going to say much more about that because we talked about fathers and children last week. Okay, good. I did decide that on such a gray, cloudy, even maybe rainy day, it was time to bring some summer into all this, right? So I decided today we're going to bring some summer in. Now, whether this is we're bringing summer into the end of spring or the beginning of fall, I'm not sure, but either way, trying to bring a little summer into, into my life and yours. So, good morning. It is a holiday today. Well, we mentioned Father's Day, but it's also Juneteenth, right? Some of you noticed that on your calendar this year? Probably if you have a printed calendar, this is probably the first year you've had Juneteenth on your calendar. There it is. It was just enacted as a federal holiday last year. How many of you know what Juneteenth is about? A few of you. Those of you, those of you that know how to, how to use Google and have inquisitive minds, good for you. The rest of you, well done for staying off of Google. <laughs> Juneteenth is June 19th. It's a, it's a holiday that celebrates the end of slavery in the United States. Now, that did not occur with the Emancipation Proclamation, which happened in January of 1863. 1863, that's the year that this church was founded. The, the end of slavery did not even come at the end of, um, end of the American Civil War, which happened in earlier 1865, a couple of years after the Emancipation Proclamation. But Juneteenth remembers June 19th of 1865 when a couple of months after the official end of the Civil War, after Lee's surrender, that uh, the, the, the Union troops first arrived in the state of Texas. The last state, the furthest from sort of the, the capital and the, and, the, and, and the Union armies, the last state where a Union presence finally arrives and declares that in that state also slavery is ended and all slaves are officially, formally freed. Actually, it was the state of Texas that was the first state to recognize June 19th as a state holiday. And just last year, after other states had done so as well, finally it became a federal holiday as well. It's interesting that on Juneteenth or June 19th, we are actually in that passage of Scripture that speaks to bondservants and masters. Or some of your Bibles will read slaves and masters. Now, it's, a, it's, a, it's curious for us to get into this passage, but it, we, we are going to have some questions as we come to it. We can certainly make some application about work relationships today, but you're going to, you're going to, have, to have to wrestle with the fact that I am not a slave and my boss is not my master. So we are, we are talking about applying the text rather than it being directly relatable to us in our experience. And, and actually, the, the reality of slavery and what doesn't happen in this passage raises some questions for us. So even before we get into the verse by verse of the text itself, there's a couple of issues I need to deal with right up front. That we do live toward God's future in the midst of a broken present. We live towards God's future in a broken present. We are not there yet. Things are not as they ought to be. And God allows for things to not yet be as they ought to be. When we, when we come to slavery in the, in the Old Testament or even the New Testament, here in, the, in, in this, God's letter to his church, we find addressed slaves, how to relate to your masters, masters, how to relate to your slaves or servants without 
any condemnation of slavery. Without slavery itself being confronted as wrong, and hasn't that at some point bothered you? Haven't you at some point say, yeah, but why does not God through Paul confront slavery as the evil that it is? Or maybe it's because we are are more enlightened, we are more aware today than Paul was when God was writing this through him. Maybe actually we are less aware. Maybe we are more unaware. Maybe we're, we're, we're more unaware, uninformed about God's priority. God's priority for personal transformation, for making us different rather than changing our circumstances or environment or making our culture different. God is much more concerned about him, his, the changes he brings about in his people rather than the changes of our circumstances. Now, Paul does say concerning circumstances, concerning whether you're slave or free, Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, and avail, then avail yourself of the opportunity. Do so. If you can become free, do it. It will give you more free opportunity of your own in serving Christ. But verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. You have been set free in Christ. Likewise, he who was free when called is yet a bondservant of Christ. Paul is much more concerned with our relationship to the Lord than he is with our present social standing, whatever that looks like. Now, also, we're probably more unaware today about distinctions of slavery and servanthood throughout history. Our own American experience of an evil slavery colors our thinking. It changes our understanding. We, we easily assume that all servanthood that's described anyway, or slaves or bond servants, is kind of like the bondage and enslavement that is part of the American story, America's history. And actually... In the New Testament era, in the first century, in the, um, among the Roman Empire, uh, a bond servant was actually a bit different than that. There's actually a, um, an, an explanation in the ESV preface about how some terms are translated to try to, try to um, convey these, these um, historical realities. And that's why the ESV translates bond servant instead of slaves, as some of your other versions do. Let me read from that preface in the ESV. In New Testament times, a doulos, the Greek word, is often best described as a bondservant. That is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve their master for seven years. Under contract. For a set period of time. And when the seven years had expired, the contract has expired, the servant was freed, given their wage that had been saved by the master and officially declared a freed man. You may have read sometimes in backgrounds to Bible books or something, the difference between a, a, the, the Roman citizens, there are slaves, and there are these people called freedmen. Well, who were they? Somebody who had indentured themselves into servitude for, to somebody and then had been declared free. Maybe they were captured in a foreign battle as the Roman Empire expanded, and yet after a set period of time, they again are declared free and given their freedom, given this new standing. Slaves in the American experience, in contrast, 
did not have a contract. They did not have a set time where they were going to be freed and given payment for the services over the years. This idea of a bondservant in the first century Roman Empire is more like military service today. I remember when I signed my enlistment contract. All of a sudden, because I, I, I was, I was a, the, the, the servant of anybody who had more stripes on their sleeves or metal on their, sol- on their shoulder than I did. And that was most everybody else in the military, in the Air Force. And so I was, I was the servant of many. I had many bosses all over the base. And I, couldn't ju- I, I, I didn't have the freedom to decide if I wanted to do what I was told or not. I was given a job, I was given particular responsibilities, and if I chose not to do them, if I chose to walk away, well, I could spend the rest of my term of service in some nice place in Kansas called Leavenworth instead. I didn't have the opportunity. In fact, when you join the military, you give up some of your freedoms you have as an American citizen. You give up some of your constitutional rights. You yield those rights for this period of enlistment, this period of service. And so a bondservant was something like that. Now, but in this context, because this letter doesn't condemn slavery, does that mean that God approves of it? Even if this is a nicer, gentler form than we would think of in terms of our normal understanding of slavery, this being a bondservant, which, as I described to the kids, was sometimes entered into willingly. Does that mean that God is for some kind of servitude, some kind of slavery? Well, God is not for slavery. But the darkness is where the light is seen. For instance, when Joseph is sold into slavery, he's tossed into a pit, and he's sold into slavery by his own brothers. It's in that context that he is raised up out of that pit. He's raised up out of a prison, and he becomes actually the prime minister of Egypt, and he becomes the savior not only of a nation, but he becomes the savior of his own brothers who had sold him into slavery in the first place. He becomes the savior of those who had cast him into the pit in the first place. And that story of Joseph is a picture of a much bigger, grander story of the Lord Jesus himself. The Egyptian bondage of Israel, enslaved in Egypt, was the context in which God's Passover redemption and his exodus out of bondage into new life could be expressed. A new life freed from previous bondage, a new life with God in his promise. It is into the fallen, broken world that the king of creation comes not to receive his due, but he comes as a servant to give his life for us. It's often in the darkness that the light is seen. In this letter, God is telling us how to be different in the midst of a broken world. In the midst of this broken world where we see sin as it is and we see that sin has, has twisted marriage relationships, how sin has has. has twisted and corrupted family relationships and, 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 and rebellion enters in, how sin has, has corrupted our work relationships together so that we don't have unity and harmony, but instead one dominates another and another one deceives another. And sin enters into these relationships and yet in the midst of this broken world, how shall we then live? How do we live this new life in Christ in a not yet new world? world. That's Ephesians. 
This new standing that we have been given in Christ is expressed, is lived out as light in the midst of darkness. You see, God is not for slavery. God is for serving. God is telling us how to be different in the midst of that broken world. He's not telling us how to fix the broken world. He's not saying you live in this ways and it's going to fix the culture. It's going to fix society. It's going to fix the world. No, he will fix the world when he comes. Our role is to be different in the midst of it, to shine his lights in the midst of darkness. God is not for slavery. He is for serving. We were made to know him and to serve him. To serve him not in a forced and resented way, but to serve him out of love. That bondservant picture in the Old Testament, that's an image of one who loves the Lord so much that he wants to serve this Lord with the rest of his life. What's one of Paul's favorite names for himself, favorite terms for himself in his letters to the churches is Paul, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. He says, my master is so good. My master cares for me and looks out for me. There is nothing else I'd rather do. There is no one else I'd rather serve than he who loved me and gave himself for me. And we get to step into that, that kind of willing service, even in our work relationships. Because, you see, we are living in the midst of this broken. We are living new by faith toward God's future. We live this new life, we live this new way, not as some moral code, not as some sets of of principles or standards that if we do this, life is going to be better for us. No, we live by faith. This is what trusting God in the midst of the brokenness looks like. What it looks like in marriage, what it looks like in family, what it looks like here in work relationships. You see that emphasis as we, as, as we glance into the text from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. It says, Bondservants, obey your masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord rather than to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, he'll receive back from the Lord. There's a confidence, there's a faith in the Lord in the midst of my service. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. That knowing is not merely being cognitively aware of that. It's being confident of that. It's being sure of that. Having this trust, this trust, True confidence. Having this faith in who the Lord is for me, I then serve him in this way, in this context. It is by faith in what God has done for us in Christ that we have this new life, that we live this new life in all of these various contexts or circumstances, whether marriage, family, work plays out this way in those three. We can trust ourselves to one another because we have trusted ourselves to God's. We're in his hands, so I can trust myself to my spouse. We can give ourselves in love for our wives. Why? Because Jesus gave himself for us. We can honor our mother and father because our father has first honored us, has 
taken away all of our shame in Christ. I can do that for, for, for my parents even when it costs me because I know my Father will look out for me. My God shall supply all my needs. We can be gentle and patient with our children because God our Father is gentle and patient with us. We consider them a precious trust from the Lord, knowing, understanding that our Heavenly Father delights in us as His precious inheritance. I can obey my boss at work because my work is for Jesus whose work was for me. I can look out for those who work for me because God provides for me. God is looking out for me. I don't need to look out for number one. God has taken care of that. So, in that confidence, it is by faith in what God has done for us in Christ that we live new in those contexts, in that confidence, I can take my faith to work. Now let's go back to that passage. Let's, let's actually read through it again. The, 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 the first four verses relating to bondservants. And we're going to apply that bondservant in that economic context. We're going to apply that to our working world today. You may think in your work situation, you know, Bob, it's all right. Bondservant works pretty well where I work. That's kind of what it feels like. How do I live for Christ there? Let's read. Bondservants. Obey your earthly masters, who are merely earthly masters, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord, not merely to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. Take your faith to work. How do we do that? Well, first of all, he says, obey as accountable to them. Obey in fear and trembling. Obey as this is the, this is the one who I am accountable to. There's something within us that wants to raise up and say, well, but who made you the boss of me? Well, the answer is God did. Okay? And, and so we, we serve in that context in which we've been played. And Paul said, hey, if you can change it, if you're at the point where you're able to obtain your freedom, do so. Because then you're more in charge. You have more freedom than to serve the Lord. Wonderful. But you can serve the Lord in that setting, in that context. As accountable to another is an opportunity for us to display faithful servanthood. Do so with sincerity, he says. With a sincere, authentic heart, as you would Christ. Titus chapter 2 and verse 9 adds to that. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. You know, there's some times, in the confidence of youth, there's some arguments I wish I could take back. Okay, when in the confidence of not-so-youth, there's also arguments I wish I could take back. To be well-pleasing... Not argumentative. What will please my boss here? Not pilfering. I think back to my Air Force days, and as a government employee, okay, the military is also part of government employees, and all, every government office has, had, at least they did then, skillcraft pens. And the joke among any federal employee was how many skillcraft pens did you have at home? Because the, the supplies from the office always made their way home. 
A little bit of life pilfering, what's that going to hurt? Not pilfering. Not taking advantage of the work environments and work resources for myself. When in doubt, actually, it's better that I, com- I bring something to the work resources rather than I'm taking something from. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine, the teaching of God our Savior. Your work ethic, how you carry out your duties, how you relate in your work environment, this is an opportunity for you to show your confidence in God as your Savior. My hope is in Him. My trust is in Him. He's the one in whom is my confidence. And you demonstrate that by how you, how you work toward others. Not as eye service or people-pleasing. Don't pretend to labor when you're actually loitering. One way this plays out in an office setting, I, I work in an office more than I work with my hands these days. So in an office setting, this works like, what are you really doing on the computer? Is that work that you're doing on the computer or is that something else? It sure looks like you're working there on the computer, but it could be shopping. It could be surfing. It could be games. It could be your own personal communications with others. What is it that you're doing? Are you laboring or are you loitering? Don't give the outward appearance of working merely to impress. You've, you've been in that circumstance. You've been around those folks that when the boss is around, when the supervisor is present, boy, they're diligent, hardworking folk. And when the boss leaves, they sit down. When the boss leaves, they relax, and now you're carrying, you're carrying the load, you're getting stuff done, but they might be, then still be the first to take credit for it. Don't be that person. Not working merely to impress. Don't work only when washed. I remember a story years ago of a guy that I knew that he was leaving his job. He was a, he, he, he was a mechanical engineer, and he built race engines for Pontiac. And he was leaving that, that engine-building team to go work for somebody else. And so the very last engine that he had assembled, the very last engine that he had built up and put back together with the modifications in it, they needed to use it on race day. In the midst of qualifying or something, the other engine had blown out, and they had to put this engine, his last engine, in the car. Was the last engine that he built before he left to go to another job, no longer accountable to these folks, was the last engine that he built going to be any good? And he went through the, the whole race, and I remember his dad was so proud that he finished his work well. It was a testimony to his fidelity. It was a testimony to his faithfulness that he carried out the work of that employer all the way to the last job that he did for them. It was a good testimony because he had been known among them as one who was a follower of Jesus. Would you be pleased to pay a worker like you for what you do and how you do it if you were the boss, if you were the owner of this business? Rendering service with a goodwill, faithfully discharging duties as you would do if this work was for Jesus. And not just for your boss, 
because actually it is, isn't it? It is the Lord Jesus Christ whom we serve. That's what the text says. Be known then for your, for your fidelity. Be known for your honesty. There might be times when a boss would, would say, I need you to lie for me here. I need you to protect me. I need you to tell a lie. And your response is probably going to be, I can't lie for you. But know this, on the same basis, I'm never going to lie to you. I can't deceive somebody else or take advantage of somebody else for you, but neither will I take advantage of you for myself or for somebody else. Be known for that level of integrity that you would even have the courage, the confidence in God who will provide for you that you can even say no to that which you should not say yes to. And masters, when that happens, what do you do? Masters, it says in verse 9, do the same to them and stop your threatening. That suggests that in the first century and perhaps today, the easiest way for us to get somebody else to do something we want done is to threaten them in one way or another. Maybe it's do that or I'll fire you. Do that or I won't give you this or I won't do that. Do the same to them. What's the same to them? The same refers to with the same spirit of dedication to them as the Lord. Colossians chapter 4 verse 1 adds in the parallel passage, treat them justly and fairly. Be a supervisor. You may not be the owner of the enterprise. Maybe you're just a supervisor. Maybe you're a manager, a foreman. But, but treat them justly and fairly. Be known that as a boss that can be counted on to do what's right, to do what's fair. You may not like it still, but they're being fair, they're being consistent, they're treating everybody equally and honorably. Treat them justly and fairly. Do the same to them for their good and not merely for the work's good. I've known what it's like to have a boss that advanced me even when that wasn't good for the, for, the, for the work center that we worked in. That he was losing one of his more skilled staff members in order to recommend me for a special duty assignment that I wanted and that would advance me, but then would be a drain on the work center that he was still responsible for. And yet, because that was better for me in my circumstance and situation, I knew what it was to have a boss who did what was right for me rather than himself and even for the work enterprise. But it was good for the bigger picture. I known, I've known what it's like to have bosses that forgave my screw-ups on more than one occasion. I can rehearse several of, the, of them in my mind, but one of my supervisors had a saying, and maybe he's had to say it quite frequently because I still remember it. Bob, if you're not making a mistake then you're probably not doing anything. And what he, he was giving me permission to at times make a mistake and not let that become disabling, not let that become a, 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 a reason that I needed to draw back, I needed to take less chances, I needed to be more careful and cautious about everything that he did. He wanted me to go ahead and step out and take a chance and stretch even if it didn't go as, as I had expected. And he gave me permission to do that. He, yet he still, yeah, okay, that was a mistake. That was a screw up there. But if you're not making a mistake, you're probably not doing anything. He gave me the chance, the opportunity, the permission to go again. I learned in the Air Force, what I'll call sergeant school, just to kind of keep it simple. One of the lessons they taught me there that I think is true anywhere. 
I was surprised the Air Force actually had it right, being a government organization and all, but they said, you take care of your people, and the people will take care of the mission. That's about it. You know, that works in church. It struck me that that worked in the mission field in Africa. That works in church. In fact, uh, as pastors and elders, we recognize that, that our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that our job is to take care of the members of the church body so that they are then equipped to take care of the mission that God has given us together, especially to the people that are right around them. I remember my first experience as an Air Force supervisor. The first troop I, I ever supervised was somebody that was on, he, he might have been on his fourth supervisor by the time he got to me. And it was at the point that it was really time to, to um, end this young man's Air Force career prematurely. And yet I had a boss that, that um, worked with me through this process. He said, there's three things you've got to consider. What's best for the Air Force, which would have been to end his enlistment and use that slot for somebody else? What's best for this work center? Well, he was simply in a job. He'd been allowed to stay in a job that he simply did not have the capacity to do. He could not keep up. He was over his head. He had been over his head for two and a half years. And no other supervisor had done something about it when there were off-ramps to do something, to put him in a different path, in a different spot where he could have succeeded. And for us, what's best for the work center, what's best for this work team is to remove him out of it so that we can get somebody else who is competent and qualified and who can do the work that others won't have to carry the work for him. Because we're limited. We only get so many people. And yet the third question was, what's best for the individual? And he had been kind of just passed along the system for this long that he was past the point of being able to be reclassified into something else. And so the right thing to do for him was not to cut his enlistment short now, not to send him home on some kind of a general discharge, but to let him finish that term of enlistment honorably and then move on to something else that he was more qualified for. Opportunities to redirect him had been passed, so now was the time not merely to look out for what was best for the Air Force, what was best for our work center, but also to keep in mind what's best for this person. Do the same for them, a spirit of dedication and goodwill, treating them justly and fairly. And he says, stop threatening. Use vision instead of power. Inspiring a shared vision and encouraging the heart of the people you work with, the people who work for you, is probably the, the single most important thing you can do as a supervisor, leader, manager. I just, something else I was involved with in our mission in Africa the last three years that we were in Transworld Radio was we did a series of leadership development with all of our national directors of our various national Afri offices in Africa. One of the things we did for those leaders is we, we, we facilitated a process where they would get feedback from the, let's say, the board chairman that they reported to, also senior ministry leaders that they worked in parallel with, and also they would get feedback from those whom they led on their team in, the, in those national offices. And in every case, we evaluated them on seven different aspects of leadership that we had identified as these are critical for how we lead people in this mission. And one of those, encouraging the heart, every leader I walked through that exercise with, every leader, including myself, the leader always thought that they encouraged others on their team to a greater level then the others on their team perceived that they were encouraged. 
Now, some were pretty good at encouraging. Some were not at all good at encouraging. And yet, every one of them thought they encouraged others considerably better than they actually did. That was true for me. And I've kind of remembered since then that as long as it's authentic, as long as it's genuine, you probably can't go overboard and encouraging the heart of the others you work with, the others who work for you. There's not enough encouragement in the midst of the stuff of life, is there? And that's something that we can do as we lead others, as we work with others. They don't get enough of it. In fact, I remember just last week there was somebody here in ministry, here in the church, and they were in the midst of serving in a particular way. And I said, I, 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 I got to tell them afterwards the difference that made. That, that, was, that, was, that was a blessing to me. And yet, it was a busy Sunday. I had phone calls. Had, had, a, had a, you know, the, the pre-K picnic was going on, and, and uh, I also had a principle that you don't leave Julie with a whole bunch of, of preschoolers and kindergartners alone for too long, that you, you rescue her, you help her in that. So I was due over there, and I, I let the moment of following up and catching that person and encouraging, I let that go by. Don't do that. That's important. We need that encouragement from people around us. You who are masters, you who are leaders, you who are bosses, show no partiality knowing that your Father in heaven, your Master in heaven does not show partiality. In Rome, there was a two-tiered system. In Rome, those that typically had bond servants were also those who knew the magistrates, who were known by the authorities. A slave, on the other hand, had no such social connections. A slave had no real, no real legal recourse if they were being treated unfairly, unjustly. It's kind of like today. When you see that somebody who has political connections, that they get away with doing something that, that if you were to do the same thing, you'd be caught up for it. You'd be brought on charges for it. But with God, there is no such partiality or favoritism. There are not two different systems for the connected and for the rest. There, there is a promise from the Lord that... The powerless have an advocate. The powerless have an advocate with the Lord himself. He knows, and he will vindicate you. I should really pause right here and say, well, wait a minute. Do you know that advocate? Do you know the one, Jesus the righteous, who actually, on the, on, on the basis of his righteousness, will be the advocate for you, the one who is forgiveness for you? Do you have the one who, no matter who makes, the, uh, who makes the accusation, that you have one who will go for you before God himself and say, this one, he or she, they're, they're with me. They're covered under my death for them. Do you have that advocate? Because you can today. You can know that certainty this morning. That right where you sit, right now, to, to say, God, I believe you concerning Jesus, your son, who came and died in my place for my guilt, for my shame, that he might give me forgiveness and new life. And that my standing before you is not because of what I do, but it's because of what he has done for me. Lord, I believe you concerning Jesus, your son, my Savior.
You see, you and I, clearly, even in our confidence in Christ, we have certain advantages compared to people around us. The question is, what will you do with your advantages? Will you use those advantages, whether, whether a servant or a master, whether an a employee or a boss, will you use your advantages merely for yourself or for the advancing of others? You see, to use your advantages, to use your resource, to use your capacity to advance others, that looks something like Jesus. That's what he did for us. He used his standing, his righteousness, to bring us with him. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33, it's just after the Mount of Transfiguration. They have seen Jesus transfigured before their eyes in the glory of his coming kingdom. Wow. And after that, Jesus tells them. He tells his disciples that he is going to be handed over. He's going to be killed, and on the third day, he will rise again. Now, this is a pretty big deal. I mean, this is the kind of the main point of everything. Surely, as they're walking the road back toward Capernaum, they got to be talking about what's this? What is he? He's going to be killed. He's going to. He's going to. He's going to raise again on the third day. How does this fit in with their understanding of Messiah and His kingdom? That's got to be the conversation on the road, right? Not so much. You know what they're talking about? What they're actually talking about is they're arguing among themselves, loud enough for Jesus to overhear, they're arguing among themselves of who's going to be greatest in the coming kingdom. Jesus asked them, so what are you guys talking about there as we were walking on the road? Have you been in that situation where what you were talking about as you wandered there along the road, you really don't want to talk with Jesus about? That's where they were then. Oh, really? Uh, you know, nothing really. Uh, Jesus says, come here, come here. Let's sit down. Let's talk. And Jesus says to them, whoever among you would be great must be a servant. And whoever among you would be the first must be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In this world, success is measured by how many serve you. But in God's kingdom, success is measured by how many you serve. At the Last Supper, just before Jesus dies for us in our place, he asked his disciples, there in that upper room, there at that table, he asked them, who's more important? The one who reclines at the table and is served by others? Or the one who serves those who are reclining at the table? And the answer seems obvious, doesn't it? Oh, certainly, the one who, is, who reclines at the table is more important than the one who serves. That's why you tip your waitress or your waiter, Right? Because they have been serving you and you're important, so you become their personal benefactor. And yet, Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. In fact, as one who had just clothed himself as a servant and washed their feet. And he says, go and do likewise. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Humble yourselves and serve one another as I have humbled myself and serve you. May that be true. More and more, as the Spirit fills us with this fullness of Christ, 
that others see in our faithful serving or our faithful leading, that others see something of Christ in us by the Spirit's working, by our yielding to him because we trust him more than we trust ourselves, that they might see something of Jesus in me as we worship in our work. Lord, would you help me to live out my faith in in serving you by serving others well? Lord, help me do that not for the benefit it brings me, but so that others might see something of Jesus. Lord, I, I would even ask that you would give the circumstances sometimes that are unfair. Lord, I don't dare ask for too much of that. But Father, even in what is unfair, give me the grace in trusting you to serve faithfully. Help me to show my trust in Jesus both by serving those whom I lead and by serving well those that I work for. Lord, by the presence of your life-giving Spirit, would you fill my life with more of the life of Jesus? It's in his name we pray. And all who agree said, amen.